0: Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Heart Podcast. It is my great pleasure today to be joined by Dr. Chris Fordyce from Duke University. Chris, would you like to introduce yourself for the, uh, the Heart audience? Thanks, James, for
1: having me today on the podcast. Um, again, my name is Chris Fordyce. I'm a cardiologist, did my training in Canada, and I'm currently a clinical research fellow at the Duke
0: uh, Clinical Research uh, Institute. And uh, you've uh, very recently written an excellent Education in Heart uh, article, which is shortly to be published in the uh, journal. And this is really, a, I guess, a state-of-the-art paper, uh, and it's entitled The Optimal Non-Invasive Imaging Test Selection for the Diagnosis of Ischemic Heart Disease. And as readers of the journal will have uh, realized over the last few years, there have been I guess several guidelines issued both uh, in the U.S. from the ACC and the AHA, and also in Europe, the European Society of Cardiology, and in the United Kingdom, the, uh, the NICE government organization has issued guidelines on the best way to assess patients who are presenting with, with chest pain. Um, Chris, maybe we can start perhaps uh, with a quick summary for the audience of where the international guidelines, uh, where they are in agreement generally, and areas of uh, difference between the guidelines that uh, that stick in your mind?
1: Yeah, that's a great question and you know so the guidelines were published, um, the American guidelines were published in 2012, the Europeans in 2013, and the NICE guidelines from the UK in 2010. And actually you know when you review the guidelines there are what I consider several fundamental differences uh, between the guidelines. So when we think about our first step in terms of Determining how, whether or not we should test a patient for the diagnosis of you know, ischemic heart disease or whether it is cord, obstructive coronary disease that accounts for their, their symptoms, right um, we think about how, how do we calculate a pretest probability and what we really want to know is how do we, um, whether that patient has an intermediate pretest probability and in fact, each of the guidelines uses a different risk score to calculate a pretest probability. The American guidelines use a combined diamond forester cas uh, the European guidelines use an updated genders algorithm. Yeah. And the NICE guidelines use uh, an, actually a Duke-based pretest probability score using it by prior. Even the definitions of intermediate pretest probability vary. So the American guidelines uh, define it as 10 to 90 percent, uh, the Europeans 15 to 85, and then the NICE guidelines 10 to 60 percent. So I think fundamentally there are differences in the guidelines. And so there's sort of no question, you know, you, there's no, no wonder why we have perhaps differing baseline opinions on mm. you know how best to proceed with non-invasive mm. testing. Can we agree um, at
0: least at this kind of edges of risk? So if you've got somebody with a let's say a greater than ninety percent risk or a less than ten percent risk, I mean what do the guidelines tell us to do in those situations?
1: Well that's a good point. I think you know greater than ninety percent we would consider uh, this patient to be very high risk and uh, we think it's sort of from a Bayesian standpoint um, there would be really no point in, 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 in pursuing non-invasive testing, right. um, which we should think about um, angiography. And, and we've outlined that uh, in, our, in our paper. And certainly with a very low pretest probability, um, I think it's reasonable to consider um, you know, either deferred testing, watchful waiting, medical optimization right. um, for the same reasons.
0: Yeah. yeah. So it's really that intermediate risk, as you say, intermediate pretest probability group where the, uh, where the differences mainly lie, I guess. Right. Exactly. And you've also been uh, instrumental at Duke in coming up with the, uh, or being running, I guess, the the PROMISE trial, an enormous undertaking, again, des- I guess designed to really tease out the role of uh, CT coronary imaging in this kind of uh, clinical scenario. Do you want to briefly, I know it's an enormous trial, but if you could just briefly summarize the, the headline findings of PROMISE and how that might play into perhaps not the current guidelines, but maybe guidelines going forward from the American societies?
1: Sure. I mean, I think, you know, the, the historical perspective is that um, before PROMIS uh, there were really no randomized trials that studied imaging um, even from functional strategies. Um, there are no trials that actually studied uh, stress imaging or stress, stress testing at all. And um, with the emergence of CT, of course the question was, um, you know, how should we best proceed with uh, non-invasive imaging? For patients uh, for a diagnosis of coronary artery disease among patients with an intermediate pretest probability, so the PROMISE trial randomized just over ten thousand patients, mainly in the United States and some sites in Canada, to a, um, a strategy of either functional or anatomical. Uh, testing for patients with an intermediate pretest probability. And these patients, you know, they were, they're were they your typical patients. They had a Diamond Forrester, you know, just above 50% in terms of probability. They had several risk factors. Basically, the sites predetermined what functional test they would choose. So whether it be a, a simple exercise treadmill test or uh, stress imaging. And then they were subsequently randomized to either that functional test or a CT. And, and, you know, the no, a novel aspect of it was really, it was a pragmatic trial. So, following randomization, you know, to either one of these testing modalities, each site could sort of determine uh, how best to manage their patient. And, you know, the main primary endpoint, composite endpoint, was not met. I mean, the, the event rates were very low. So, in the range of 3% at just over two months. So, there it was essentially a neutral result between both anatomic and functional testing. Yeah. And so, I think it it teaches, you know, there's a couple points. So first of all, and this corroborates some recent, you know, registry work that, you know, patients with, despite being intermediate risk by traditional risk scores, these patients are actually have very good outcomes no matter uh, what, you, what you choose. So whether it's an anatomic or a functional um, strategy. And this was also seen in, in the Scott Hart trial uh, run out of the U.K.,
0: and just um, just quickly, the, the Scott Hart trial was run from Edinburgh. Is that correct? And similar kind of study, but some uh, a few differences that readers may not be aware of between the two trials.
1: Some differences, exactly. The you know, and we've highlighted that in the article as well. Right, but right. Scott Scott Hart uh, was really a, a trial of changing a change in your diagnostic thinking. So patients were had sort of a, uh, the majority of patients in Scott Hart had treadmills performed, right, and they were expected to go. You know, some. A portion of them were expected to go to angiography, and then they were randomized to, to usual care or or CT. And the CT did change diagnostic thinking; it, it canceled catheterization, and it was felt to be additive in terms of, of their management. Okay. Um, and and we can and that's discussed in more detail in the article
0: in the paper. Um, right, right. Uh, and I see it at the, towards the end of the paper. You've got some very nice clinical scenarios actually written up as multiple choice questions, which I think readers will really enjoy in terms of the optimal test for a 55-year-old female with typical pain versus atypical pain uh, and that kind of thing, which uh, I think is really useful. Uh, Readers tend to get a lot out of those, uh, choosing the the optimal scenario. So I think just to summarize what you've said is that uh, high-risk patients, we can generally agree, should be considered for an invasive angiogram to make the diagnosis and then obviously revascularization if appropriate. Low-risk patients, lifestyle and risk factor modification, but not necessarily any need for either non-invasive or invasive testing. And in this large intermediate group, uh, variously defined, as you've said, across the, the four guidelines, I guess we're seeing almost an equipoise really, where CT has now, uh, I think on the back of Promise and Scott Hart taken a, a, a greater role. But the patients are they have a good outlook, whatever you do. But either CT or a functional study may be appropriate, I guess, depending on local. Expertise as well, that's another factor we we haven't mentioned so far. Some places better at doing, let's say, stress echo than they are at doing nuclear testing.
1: Absolutely. I think what you just said is is very reasonable. Local expertise is critically important. And um, I think that both strategies should be considered uh, sort of in a simultaneous fashion. Uh, by the
0: clinician. Yeah, exactly. We're not doing the patient a disservice by excluding one whole branch of imaging. Everything should really be up for selection depending on the, I guess, patient preference, physician preference, and, and local expertise. Brilliant. Well, thanks exactly. Thanks very much indeed, uh, Chris. This has been a really instructive uh, discussion. Thanks very much for joining us uh, from Duke. Uh, once again, this is Dr. James Rudd, Associate Editor for Heart Journal, uh, presenting the Heart Podcast.